Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. On Commons People this week, Brexit gets paused. And one way or another, we will leave the EU with this deal to which this House has just given its assent. So are we heading for an election? There is still an opportunity for the Brexit bill to be brought back before us, and I think that might be a more orderly thing to do, is to, you know, let's get that bill through Parliament. Well, there's the, the choice. And what now for the DUP? And I, I nearly choked when the Prime Minister said it. <laughs> when he, he told us, well, don't worry about it, because all of these changes which will infect Northern Ireland will be light touch. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh. Uh, Paul War is off today, but we've got a great replacement, Anand Menon. Hi, Arj. Hey, he's the director of the UK in a changing Europe think tank. Also with us is Rachel Wearmouth. Hello. Hi, Rachel. And our special guest is the Tory MP, Bim Afalami. Good morning or afternoon, whenever this is going out. <laughs> it's afternoon and we're <laughs> recording in the afternoon, actually. We're sat in Bim's office today and there's the usual kind of stuff all around paintings on the wall, uh, an election map, but also he's got a whiteboard which has written on it, get Brexit done equals beg, extend, riot. What's going on there, Bim? I have absolutely no idea. This is, obviously my team have, have, have done this. I, I have no idea. Oh, right. It's an anagram, I think. Yeah, but, I, I um, hope so. That is such a low <laughs> blow doing that to him, straight out of the traps. <laughs> It's fairly prominent, to be honest. Well, anyway, let's carry on. <laughs> it's been a strange week for Boris Johnson anyway, after MPs backed his Brexit deal in principle, but refused it to allow it to go through the Commons in time for Britain to leave the EU on October the 31st. His do-or-die pledge broken, the PM is now threatening an election. Let's hear one of his Cabinet Ministers, Robert Buckland, setting out the case for a winter vote. We think now that with Parliament having done what he did last night... The only way to break the deadlock is by having a general election. And frankly, we need one sooner rather than later. I think having one this year, however inhospitable the weather might be, is the way to break the deadlock. That's what the Prime Minister has indicated. Uh, It's not, I think, where any of us particularly want to be, but Parliament has failed to really pave the way for Brexit. We need a new one. Anand, what's coming first, Brexit or an election? You see, if I was Paul, what I'd say is, I remember back in 1838 when I was a cub reporter for the Rochdale Reporter, something like this happened then. Okay. But I'm not, so I haven't got that sort of knowledge. So I'm going to have to say, well, it basically hinges on the fights going on inside the two parties, doesn't it? Uh, There is clearly a struggle going on inside the Labour Party about whether to go now or to go later. We're getting reports that the same thing's happening inside number 10. My guess would be inside number 10, the quick election fight will... The quick election camp will win in the Labour Party. The other camp will win. So then it will boil down to a calculation about numbers. How many Labour MPs are willing to go against the party line, uh, which won't be many. So I suspect the election will be next year, but there's no guarantee Brexit will be done by then. Once the extension comes through, I've always thought this month timetable was a bit odd because... 
Once the extension comes through, it is a licence to Parliament to play merry hell. And by Parliament, I don't just mean the House of Commons, I mean the House of Lords as well. And they're not going to play nicely on this, and they're going to stick all sorts of amendments on it, and they're going to kick up rough, and they're going to try and slow it down within the limits they impose on themselves. So I would think Brexit might just about come first, but I'm thinking next year for both. Right, yeah, that's interesting what Anand said, because this second reading majority that Boris Johnson got, it was 30 or so. Is it stable, though, Rachel? Um, I don't necessarily think that it is, because... um, particularly those 19 Labour MPs, they're, they're dying to amend the bill at the next stage because I think that's that's the whole whole point. At the minute, Boris is able to say... Sorry, Boris Johnson is able to say he's got a deal at a big success for him, but they want to amend it as much as possible, so they're going to look to push through a customs union. Um, the second referendum brigade will also want to, to get in there. Whether or not they'll succeed is another question. Um, and they'll also want to close any potential no-deal trapdoors in the in the future political declaration. so. But Bim, if, if you're the PM, you might as well have another go at the deal, and then if it gets amended, you can just pull it and have an election anyway. Why do you not think that would be a better course of action, to have another go at the deal? I think one of the difficulties in politics is that sometimes you've got to do two things at once, and two things can also be right at the same time. So is it clear that right now we have the numbers to get through the bill completely without any amendments, it is not clear. I happen to think we just about do, but people who I respect in the Parliamentary Party would maybe doubt that. What I'm saying is it is close. Uh, and I accept what you said about the 30, um, the, the, the majority of 30. I think that is that is more fragile than, than it looks. So, you know, it is. We, this is all nip and tug. So bearing that fact in mind, I completely understand Number 10 Downing Street, lots of people want to go for an election with a very clear message. We have a deal now. The ambiguity is no longer there. You know exactly what the deal is. If we get a majority, we will implement it and it will be very clear in every Conservative manifesto. All the stuff around the summer where people were saying, oh gosh, you know, run on a no deal ticket, none of that's there anymore. So from the conser- and then we say we get Brexit done and then do all sorts of other things. Now, that is a clear message. It's simple. We understand what that is. On the flip side, of course, you know, going to the public again without having delivered on the central thing of this parliament, people are nervous about. Uh, So my personal view is that, you know, we should do two things at once, which is, yes, we should, you know, lay a motion on the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, but at the same time, come up with another programme motion, or I think technically it needs to be business of the House motion, because you can't have two programme motions on the same bill, uh, and say, look, we are willing to go for an election, but if you guys, on because you're scared of an election, are unwilling to do so, why don't we also have this amended programme motion? We'll give you another five days. You know, we'll sit long hours, give you another five days. So you can't complain, you don't have time to scrutinise it, and you do two things at the same time. Now, for me, that would be a way forward, because it means that we don't lose any more time on the bill if the election doesn't get succeed. And if the election does succeed, then you're in that place anyway. So, so that would be my temptation. It's also not susceptible to sort of silly silly stuff on the opposition bench. That's really interesting. Let me just clear this up. So you think put the election, the, emo- the MPs will vote on the election motion first and then if the, if that's rejected, they will vote on the well, I, business I motion. Or how, I, I'm how would not you enough of an expert on yeah. the order, yeah. but what I know is that you can do on the same day, you yeah. can do two things at once. And there will be a clear so, choice. So, so, yeah. And so what you're basically saying is, look, if the decision is made by number 10, and I don't know where they are on this, that if the decision is made that, look, we think an election now is, you know, and I think the rationale for that is strong, 
at the same time, we want to be able to, to, if that doesn't happen, make sure we make good progress with the bill. Because I don't think necessarily it needs to go into next year, actually. I, I disagree with that, Anne. That's a dangerous thing to do because he knows his stuff. But, but, but I don't think it will go into next year. Frankly, I, look at, I looked at the opposition benches during the debates we've had so far on this. They don't have the people. They don't have the personnel who are able to drag this out, do five-hour filibusters. I just don't think they've got the people for that. I also don't think they've got the willingness for that. I don't think the public will put up for that. So, yes, could it go an extra couple of weeks, two, three weeks? Yes. But do I think this will all drag on for months? No. I, you know, this is not Maastricht again. Uh, and therefore, I think there is a good chance if we can beat off the sort of wrecking amendments. And I accept that that'll be a challenge. Uh, I don't doubt that. If we can do that, I think there's a good chance we can get this wrapped up in November. Can I, can I ask about concessions? I was just wondering, I think an interesting question is how much leeway do you think the Prime Minister has with the ERG now? Because um, if he wants to get this, this through to the next stage, well, how many concessions do you think he can make without completely losing some of the Eurosceptics? So, so. Lots of people are starting to think about this. My sense is they're asking actually the wrong question. The question is, you are ratifying, we are ratifying an international treaty. There is only so far you can go from an international treaty from which it is no longer ratified. So the, the answer in terms of the leeway is you can go so far as to not invalidate any ratification. Now, in terms of the, 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 the amendments that will come up, you've got three big ones. You've got the second referendum. That will obviously not be ratification. Uh, and I personally don't think it has the numbers. So I don't think that will work, but they will try. You've got the customs union. Now, this will be tighter, but a lot depends on what the DUP do and the SNP, because the SNP, sort of, their view is we're not voting for any sort of Brexit. They may well abstain. Who knows? But it will still be tight. Uh, and that also would mean it can't be ratified. But you have a third one, which is stuff around the no deal, as you said, the no deal trapdoor for what they perceive to be a problem end of next year, no deal. Now, it would depend quite very particularly on what the amendment was, but you could imagine there are a few things that Parliament could do there as to sort of say, look, this is still a treaty, it'll still happen, but we want a bit more say at a point in 2020, in June 2020. Yeah, so so what I'm saying is I, I don't know whether that would invalidate it, but it wouldn't strike me on, on the face of it that it would. And if that ended up passing, number 10 will have to make the decision as to whether that so ruined the strategy that they would pull the bill or not. But I think you're in a different place with that amendment than when you are on Customs Union or Second Ref, which completely wrecks the bill. Can I, just a couple of them. I mean, firstly, it's worth reminding ourselves that Theresa May had an election in 2017, not because she was a great gambler who looked at the polls and thought, let's give it a whirl, but because she thought 11 wasn't enough of a majority to get the withdrawal agreement bill through. So these numbers, I think, are very fragile just because of the detail. But the second thing, just on what you said, Bim, about... There is no ambiguity. And then you were saying a customs union amendment would wreck this. Why? I mean, the prime minister could almost just accept a customs If the customs union amendment says the prime minister will negotiate a customs union, you don't have to change the withdrawal agreement. That's something to do with the political declaration, which is amendable as much as you like. And nothing is set. I mean, the one thing about this Brexit deal compared to Mrs. May's Brexit deal is it is far, far blinder. And it's blinder because you don't have the backstop which set a baseline for any future trade deal. So actually, we really do not know what comes next. And in that sense, it's riddled with ambiguity, surely. On some level, I remember people with Theresa May saying that that was blind as well. I mean, yes, you are right. The future trade arrangements haven't been set out. But the backstop was not meant to be 
a baseline. It was meant to be a fallback. It was not a baseline. It was meant to be something that would only come in in the event that we couldn't get a future trading relationship sorted out by whatever date. So I know you say it was a baseline. That was only intended by certain parties. It wasn't necessarily intended by all parties. But there's the last thing I'll say about it. I don't want to yeah. descend into Nerdville. <laughs> no, the, I enjoy the, it. The Come trading on. relationship that would have superseded the backstop would have had to have as close a relationship, if not a closer relationship, than that envisaged in the backstop to be acceptable to the EU. And that's why it was a it was a sort of baseline. Yeah, I mean, look, I personally voted for Theresa May's agreement. I happen to not think at the time, and I still don't think that necessarily the backstop was the source of all evil. However, um, you know, it was rejected by many um in the ERG, 28 of them, and also rejected by the Remain wing on the opposition benches. Uh, and for those who are now complaining, which I find hilarious, they're all saying, oh, well, oh, gosh, you know, can't we have that backstop back? Because, you know, that was a sort of arrangement we could live with. I say, I don't remember them saying so at the time. When people like me were arguing, this is something that is a consensual compromise agreement, which, by the way, the current one is too. I mean, the difference is, let's not exaggerate how fundamentally different you know, the, the bill is. It's different in key areas, especially around Northern Ireland, but the bulk of it is is very similar. Um, but, you know, when people like me were arguing, look, this is a compromise, moderate agreement, go with it. These same people were saying, no, 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 no. And now they turn around and say, oh, gosh, can't we have that moderate compromise backstop again? I'm afraid that in politics, like in all of life, decisions have consequences. And it was very clear that what was going to come next after Theresa May, if Theresa May didn't get this through, and it was obvious that her premiership wasn't going to be tenable if she didn't deliver Brexit, was likely to be something that moved to a less close relationship with Europe rather than a closer relationship with Europe. And if, and I'm pretty sure everybody on this podcast now would have known that at the time. And so the politicians should have known that. And I'm afraid that you know, they're going to have to deal with the consequences. Uh, Bim, I just want to ask you a couple of things. You sound like you're in favour of having a go at this deal, having another go at this yeah, deal. Yeah, I am. Whereas it was D- D- Dominic Cummings, uh, it seems, is really, really pushing the election button hard in Downing Street while, as, while we're hearing reports that the other half of Johnson's team is kind of a bit more like you. Do you think Cummings is helpful for the government? I think that what you find is what I call the sort of fat controller syndrome, which is... People always think, you know, I sat in the tea room the other day and and colleagues of ours were all saying, well, when are they going to do this? When are they going to do that? And I said, guys, they is us. You know, this is it. There is a sense that we always need to have this sort of Svengali person who has all these dark plans and and controls the world from Downing Street. I'm afraid, you know, it's not the case. Uh, The the prime minister has loads of advisors. Of course, Dominic Cummings is a really important advisor. He was important on the referendum campaign. He's also been a previously very close advisor to Michael Gove. So, of course, he is important. But the prime minister not only has other advisors, but you have ministers and MPs and anything that happens has to go through the House of Commons. And so, you know, it's to some level, number 10 advisors will say all sorts of things and they're often very able and they understand politics. But parliamentary politics is about getting things through the House of Commons. Which brings me to, well, that brings me to my next question is, hasn't he created a problem for 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 you guys, as, as you say, the government and the Tories are one whole by making the Prime Minister sack a load of moderate Tories who want to deliver Brexit with a deal. Yeah, I don't think anybody makes Boris Johnson do anything. I think, I th- you know, he, he, he takes you know, responsibility for his own decisions. 
I think it was a very, very tricky situation the government got to with that. And I, I sort of agonised over it a lot because I know some of these people, people like David Gork, I know very well. He's one of my near neighbours in Hertfordshire, not just David, but lots of the others. Uh, Greg Clark, I also know very well. So, you know, this is not something that a lot of us in the One Nation group found easy. But at the same time, you had, uh, I saw Theresa May's premiership just ruined by indiscipline, leaks, briefing. It was so bad that a new leader had to try at the beginning and impose discipline and hope that people pull back at that point. But if you try and impose discipline in a hard way and people don't pull back on that point, what choice do you have? If at that point, you know, having tried to have a very clear line, and by the way, this is after lots of discussions, etc., having done that, and then you turn around and say, okay, you're going to break a very strong three-line whip and I'm sort of not going to do anything, that would have created the sort of similar problems to what Theresa May faced. And I said to Theresa May myself, as did, I'm sure, many others, at the time when things were really bad, I said, you're just going to have to impose discipline. You know, this is a parliamentary party. Yes, we're individuals, but we are a party. Mm. And you need to have discipline. And I'm not saying she didn't try, but it just didn't work out very well. So I am, you know, I'm genuinely torn over it. I can see how they got themselves in the situation. My personal view is that how we should try and deal with these things is to make sure it doesn't get to the point where we got to. You, you head these things off further earlier on. And I think that number 10 and the government has, has learned a lot from that, actually, watching how they've been dealing with the Tory sh- rebels sh- since sh- then. Is it time to bring them back? Or is it, could, can you not do that because you have to show that discipline matters? Well, no, I think there are olive, there are olive branches uh, and I think it's clear for some of the people, they're longer or shorter, depending on who they are <laughs> and what they've done. Uh, but there are olive branches. And I would be very, very surprised if we didn't see large numbers of those. Uh, by the way, a lot of whom were standing down anyway. Alistair Burt, who's a great friend of mine, is standing down anyway, for example. So but for those who want to stand again, I think a large number of those will stand again on, on the Conservative banner. Right, now we've touched on this, but amazingly, the biggest obstacle to Johnson getting an election could be a Labour Party, which has spent years calling for one, but is now a bit uncertain. Even the shadow cabinet don't know whether Jeremy Corbyn will plump for a pre-Christmas vote. Let's have a listen to one of them, Rebecca Long-Bailey. To take that yeah, up, it's not going to happen this side of Christmas. Well, we'll see. I mean, your guess is as good as mine at this stage. It's all in Boris Johnson's Well, I hope your guess is a bit better than mine. You should know what's happening in the shadow cabinet. Well, I'm not Boris Johnson's mind reader. No, well, he wants one tomorrow, as I said. Well, not he's not said that. He's not put that before Parliament. Until he does, then we won't Twice know what's he's already asked you for a general and election. And we refused that because he hadn't provided for taking no deal off the table. And yeah, we were no, very he clear has. on that. He hasn't done that. He's not got his extension from the EU yet. And we'll get that. On Monday. Friday or Monday. Yeah. Rachel, why is Labour split over an election? Why don't they just go for it? Well, I think, first of all, you'll all know that Jeremy Corbyn has said repeatedly and numerous, numerous times, I want an election, I'm champing at the bit. Um, so the, the the leadership definitely wants an election, but it's, it's whether um, more of the MPs and the rest of the party does, and they're trying to think more strategically. They're trying to see the withdrawal agreement bill unravel so that they can pin some of that on Johnson beforehand and there's also just the pure practicalities of it the win- a winter election how is that going to play out in rural seats in Scotland how in more um, rural seats in England as well and um, but the reality is if if Jeremy Corbyn is going to back an election um, it needs like fewer than 100 MPs to 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 back such a motion and, and it'll happen in any case so 
Just on 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 this point around internally in the Labour Party and their plan to sort of spin out the withdrawal agreement, etc. Every person I speak to in the Labour Party wants one of two things at the moment. They either want to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn or they just want to avoid an election at all costs and hope that something else turns up. And the Labour Party's problem is, is, is deeper than whether you get an election now or not. It is a fundamental worry that they would either lose really badly or win. And, 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 and that, is, that is so... That is so unusual in our politics. I don't think there is actually a precedent for it at any point. I think it's really difficult for Labour to campaign as well because that all of their, their membership at the moment is absolutely um, just deep into a really vicious factional war. A lot of them are trying to get rid of their own MP. A lot of the members don't want to go out and have a pint together, never mind go knocking on doors together. It's really terrible, terrible atmosphere for the party. I can't see how they actually practically go to campaign at this point but there is an element of method to the madness i mean notwithstanding what you said bim i mean the the school of thought that wants to delay is basically a school of thought that yes might be leery about the polls and the popularity of the leader absolutely though they probably won't say that out loud in the meetings uh but they also think look we have a prime minister who's in office and not in power he seems quite popular now how do we chip away at that well firstly we make him break his solemn do or die pledge and the longer he's broken that for the more purchase nigel farage might get on some of those tories that have gone back to the tory party from the brexit party since april may and secondly you just leave him hanging in office but not in power, and hope he becomes more of a laughing stock because he can't actually govern, and hope that that erodes his own personal standings, the Prime Minister's, by the time you get to sort of March, and that might maximise your chances. I mean, it's a, obviously a gamble, but that, that I, is what I'm picking up as, as the way of thinking about uh, that. Yeah, and I, that, that, that makes sense to me, and I pick that up as well. And there, And I've said this to several of my sort of Labour friends in the Commons, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party are both at threat from smaller parties at their extremes. Uh, the Liberal Democrats, and Labour, Brexit Party, the Conservatives, though, of course, that also is the case. Flip both way both of them yeah. the other way around, yeah. though, to a smaller extent. Dealing with Brexit first, both parties, despite all the noise, did put in their manifestos in 2017 to get Brexit done in some shape or form. Getting that done first is of political... A, I happen to think it's good for the country, but that's my own personal view. Politically, it is, in my view, much better for both the Labour and the Conservative parties to get that done first. Because at that point, you can start to rebuild the country, be, rebuild your coalitions, rebuild normal, in inverted commas, politics to a certain degree. The longer this thing hangs around, the more poisonous things are. I mean, if you, what are we now? We're in October. Even if we think back to January, February this year where things weren't exactly going well for Theresa May on trying to get this thing through, the atmosphere in the country didn't seem nearly as, as difficult as it is now. Yeah. You know, that was January, February, and I'm pretty sure if we were sitting here then, we'd have said, gosh, things are looking pretty bad. Now it's so much worse in terms of atmospherically, the relationships between people, what's going on in the country. The longer this sits around, the harder it's going to be to recover it. So I'm not convinced that, that it benefits Labour really to kick this much longer. 
been purely tactically, does it not benefit the Tories to possibly fight an election election before Brexit's delivered, rather than you can do this people versus parliament thing that Number 10 have been gearing up for, and also Boris Johnson has a very simple message, vote for me and I'll get Brexit done, whereas if you deliver it and then go to the to the polls, you're the party that's been in power for ages, you're fighting an anti-austerity party after a decade of austerity. Is that election not more difficult? Can you see kind of that wing of number 10s that Dom Cummings would Yeah, I mean, the thinking. problem is this, it's, it's, everything's at six and sevens, right? Yeah. Obviously, the being able, as I said at the beginning, right now, we've got set out the domestic agenda on the NHS, police, schools. It's really strong messaging. People are clear about what that is. And those are things that people, whether they be soft Tory Remain voters, whether it be sort of more right-wing Leave voters, they all seem to think the NHS matters, police matter, and schools matter. Mm-hmm. That messaging is really strong. Now, that messaging will continue to be strong if you've already done Brexit. But I also accept that having the, you've got to deliver, you've got to vote for us to get this thing finally done. I can see there being an attraction to that. What I would also say, however, is when you get into a general election, the the, the pain of them when you're a candidate <laughs> Um, and the joy of them if you're a pundit is they're never <laughs> is pain, painful, painful for us as well, don't we? <laughs> they're never quite about what you think they're going to be about. So anybody who tells me that they can control what this is all going to be, so they'll say, right, you know, we'll do it before Brexit because of this. How do we know that it doesn't become a thing about being bogged down in why you didn't, why you agreed X in the deal rather than Y in the deal? I mean, I don't think that'll be that, but I don't know. Mm. And actually... You've just got to make sure you're prepared for every eventuality. You've got to have a message for rural voters in the southwest and bankers in Harpenden and um, new Tory voters in Mac- Macclesfield or whatever. You know, you've got to be able to do that all the time. So I think that those people who think, well, what we should do is we can run this very simple message. It may not work that way. I remember 2017 election was when I got elected. It was clear. I mean, of course, everybody was going to vote Conservative because they wanted to deliver Brexit. And give us a majority because obviously they wanted the Tory party. They understood the Tory party needed a big majority to get Brexit done. And obviously they would do so until it wasn't obvious. And we ended up talking about like fox hunting and animal sentience and all sorts of other stuff. John Prescott was wandering around East Yorkshire waving a stuffed fox. Yeah, I mean, you know, it sounds silly, but, yeah. but that told... No, it I'm, is silly. Yeah, it is silly. Yeah. But you told, <laughs> that, told, that, that told a bunch of people in my view, very wrongly, um, that, oh, the Conservatives are these old Conservatives, and Theresa May, well, I thought I liked her, but actually she's maybe just the same as all these other Conservatives, and a few other things go wrong. You throw in social care, and you lose your majority. So elections are deeply unpredictable things. That's why I think that you can do two things at once. Yes, we've got to be prepared for an election, because it's possible Labour will just try and kill this bill and get the amendments and, and wreck it. But at the same time, let's try and get this bill done in November, because if we can do that then to some degree you've done your job for this parliament and at the very least you've you, you've got a pretty strong track record i guess in a lot of ways a, a sort of pre-christmas election would be great for the conservative party because you can say parliament's ruining your christmas <laughs> but conservative will get it sorted yeah or they can say <laughs> we're ruining their christmas <laughs> and yeah i don't know I, I i'm very i mean if you look back in history you look back at when have we had winter elections 99 was it 19? Yeah, I think it was 1909. There was a December. Or was it 1911? I remember it well. Um, it, was the the war, yeah. it was in the Liberals. It was the Liberal, the Liberal government 
Um, and it was after the they couldn't get peers, the, the king to approve enough peers to pass through the people's budget. Yes. Well, I mean, they happen at times of big constitutional difficulty. And obviously we had them in the 70s. We had, we had two in the 70s, one in February and one in October. Um, neither time you ever really want to fight an election, February or October, if you can avoid it. So, you know, these tend to be at times of real strain and stress. They don't tend to be optimal times to go. So, you know, there's a reason why people, we generally do elections in spring. Um, Alan, do you think Corbyn actually secretly wants to get Brexit done? He didn't take any action against the 19 Labour MPs who voted for the deal. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what goes on inside He's his a mind. He's, I mean, he has. I mean, we know we know his views from the past on the European Union. Uh, equally, you know, you get the sense that John McDonnell's views on this have shifted since we voted to leave, and that you know, I personally get the impression that the. The arguments about the, the the financial cost of some models of Brexit have had some cut through, which you've been uh, writing about. Very well done, Arj. Indeed, great to our website. Uh, uh, seamless, and guy. it's been quoted <laughs> because the government's refusing to carry out its own economic analysis. Yours is the best. Analysis I know we, we were have we were very excited Boris when Sajid Javid said he wasn't going to do yeah. it. I have to say, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I mean, you know, Jeremy Corbyn has a genuine problem. His party is split, uh, and so it is very very difficult for him to sanction one side and not the other. Uh, and he's trying to hold this coalition together. And it might, you know, he, when he was speaking, I think, I can't remember when it was, it was sometime in Parliament over the last two or three weeks, where he said, and remember, we are the only par- party that is offering you a choice on this via a referendum. I don't know how compelling that is, but I do wonder, actually, whether or not it might prove to be more effective than everyone uh, thought. I, I, I agree. I'm one of the few people in the world who seems to think that the Labour policy isn't completely bonkers uh, because you've got Lib Dems who, in my view, made something that was tactically clever but strategically stupid in going for a revoked position, not knowing what was going to happen with the Prime Minister's negotiation. The Labour Party is in a position where they're saying, look, it's a bit complicated. We did want to deliver Brexit, but we wouldn't have done it like this. And because the Tories have done it, we'll give you a second go. Now, as I say, it's not bumper sticker stuff, but it might be enough to keep the people who always vote Labour in your column. Uh, and then the Conservative Party, again, has a clear message. But I do think that when when people criticise the Labour position, I'm not quite sure what they expected Labour to do. So you've basically got a party that's overwhelmingly Remain, but constituencies where they have a broader spread than the Conservative Party does. So you've got some really Leave constituencies and some really Remain constituencies, and they have a huge spread, whereas Conservative Party spread is more in the middle. And so it's almost easier for us to take a clearer position. The Labour Party has a tougher job politically. And so I have sympathy with Jeremy Corbyn, which are not things that I... This is not a feeling I often have. Um, <laughs> I have sympathy that when people criticise his position, they, you know, what do they expect him to do? Yeah. yeah. No I, I, I've also wondered about Boris Johnson's current strategy. It feels to me like it would have been so much more successful if it had been run straight off the back of the Leave vote when everyone was feeling a lot more divided, a lot ang- a lot angrier. And a lot's kind of passed since since then. People know a lot more about how the political system works. It's much more nuanced argument. Are you worried that it's going to be quite a divisive campaign? I think that whatever happens, unfortunately, Brexit is just... It's a sort of death star hanging over British politics. It is something that infects everything. It colours people's views of 
things that are completely unconnected with it. And it's going to take a bit of time and political leadership, yes, to try and bring the country back together. I, I, I um, and this is going to sound like horribly name droppy and it's going to be awful. But I was at an event um, not too long ago, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and and um, he made this point very powerfully. If anybody hasn't heard him speak or something, he's very very good, and he made this point very powerfully. He just talked about how accepting difference is such a key thing with religious reconciliation and he says that we need that sort of thinking in political reconciliation in a way that he had never seen in his lifetime and i thought it was just a very powerful point the way he talked about he compared it to he did a lot of mediation in um, countries like nigeria uh, where my parents are from and he he did a lot of work there mediating between different communities the muslim community christian community and he sort of said it's actually those sorts of skills he thinks are now needed in our politics because it's it's become so difficult there's been a lot of talk about mp safety as well hasn't there i mean is, is that a concern for you given the current angry atmosphere in an election I suppose. Yeah. yeah but yeah. um you know i'm a young guy it's quite cocky and think i can look after myself <laughs> i think the people who i worry about are a lot of female mps it is genuinely harder for them anybody listening to this who's who's tempted to abuse female mps just don't do it like it's just when you actually see the stuff that people send female MPs, you would be ashamed of what your fellow countrymen thought was okay to do. It's really tough for them. Um, so, you know, I can't, I'm not saying I haven't had abuse, but I can't compare it remotely to what people like um, Vicky Ford, my colleague, as I've seen what she's got, or Diane Abbott and various other people. It's really, really tough for them. Do you think the party should fund some kind of special protection for them or, you know, something I think to help? and the, the House authorities are doing a pretty good job to be honest um you know and the speakers you know very concerned about it lots of people. so i i don't think it's a case of there not being enough support i just think i'm afraid that until you can pass through this moment it's going to be very dicey and that's why one of the many other reasons why i think we need to try and move through this as quickly as we can uh, speaking of anger and division, the DUP feel like they've been sold out by the Prime Minister's plans to draw a customs border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK yes. and his watering down of consent mechanisms from the Good Friday Agreement in relation to the Brexit deal. Let's have a listen to the party's Brexit spokesperson, Samuel. At least I would have had some respect had the Prime Minister said, I have a deadline of the 31st of October, I have to get it round, I have to get round to it, I'm therefore having to make concessions, and unfortunately Northern Ireland's concessions, and you'll understand. But what I don't take is the Prime Minister thinks I can't read the agreement that has been published and I can't see in that agreement what the impact is in Northern Ireland and for because of that I'll be... And, and you love talking about the substance of the deal can you explain how and why the DUP feel like they've been sold out? Well, for the two reasons you gave, firstly because you now have the prospect of checks on the Irish Sea so trade between NI and GB will not be seamless there will be customs checks and regulatory checks there was that weird moment in the House this week where Steve Barclay forgot about the customs checks on NI to GB. Uh, and secondly, as you say, because the consent, mo- the consent mechanism has been changed deliberately and knowingly, it seems, because the EU reckoned that under the new formula, which is a sort of majority formula, they will never vote against this deal. Mm. It's uh, rigged, basically. Yeah. Uh, and the DUP think this wasn't what we signed up for, which is not what they signed up. I mean, the irony of ironies is... 
When Theresa May got the Northern Ireland-only backstop back in February 2017, she insisted that she couldn't bring it forward to Parliament because she didn't think Parliament would vote for it and she knew for a fact the DUP would hate it. No Prime Minister could ever agree to it, she said. Yeah. Um, But Boris Johnson's agreed to it. What do you make of that, Ben? Well, I've spent a lot of time over the last 48, 72 hours with DUP colleagues, um, a couple who I know very well, and have spoken to them a lot about this in detail. So let me just give this a go in terms of, and you can correct me, Anne, Anne, to the extent I get anything wrong. It is not a check. You said customs check. Use sending an, a declarations form is not the same thing as checking something. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not. I know I'm splitting hairs. And by the way, I completely understand that if I'm a business i never want to fill out any forms businesses hate bureaucracy i I completely understand that and so do i but to describe it when we say oh there's a customs check in the irish sea what people think is there's going to be like some sort of border post there or something that is not what is envisaged at the same uh, also there is some detail here needs to be filled out you know some of this nobody knows how in practice it will play out for certain companies doing certain things in certain ways at certain times the work that i think the government needs to be doing now is uh, spending a lot of time on that detail with the DUP, with people in, with businesses in Northern Ireland, saying, "Okay, this is what has been signed up to. How can we implement this in a way that is not overly bureaucratic to you?" I'm not saying it's neat. I'm not saying it's easy. But no solution on this was. No, fine. But Bim, a simple question: Why would any company fill out the paperwork if they didn't think there might be checks? You fill out paperwork if you're told you have to fill it out. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you think they're going to be checks or not it's going to be expensive well and as i say the detail on this is 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 how this gets implemented is very important but when we say paperwork as well we think we imagine physical paper that is not necessarily the case that this is why we have time now to make sure you build in the technology so that you make this as seamless as possible let me give you an example um switzerland in the center of europe not in the european union on the face of it, that's a pain if you're traveling through and around because of the, na- you know, you, you, you're used to traveling very easily. You move stuff between France, Germany, Italy, Spain, whatever. And in Switzerland, things are slightly different. Things are different in Switzerland. But over time, a system has developed whereby you can move in and out of Switzerland in a fairly seamless way. Businesses can trade in and out of Switzerland depending on what they're doing. I'm not saying Northern Ireland, Switzerland. What I'm saying is difference can be accommodated and dealt with with goodwill on both sides and that whatever solution we came up with on brexit that was going to have to be the case if i mean if you pop to france from switzerland and do your shopping in a supermarket because it's cheaper and drive back into switzerland it doesn't feel like you're doing business in the same country because there's a queue and there are checks what i was saying is i I wasn't saying that the northern island position is analogous what i'm making the point is that you can accommodate difference without, for example, ruining, you know, the Northern Irish economy or, you know, there are ways you can yeah, manage okay. things over time I guess the and pro- build up a new way of doing something. But you can't, it can't stay the same. The, and that is obviously true. That might be true if it's a purely economic concern, but it's not a purely economic concern, is it, with the unionists, with the DUP, um, when you're talking about Northern Ireland and how having that customs border in the Irish Sea makes them feel like they're one step closer to the United Ireland. I agree, and they do, and they know more about Northern Irish politics than I do, so I'm I'm sympathetic. On the flip side, 
When it comes to agricultural goods, we already right now have a different way of operating in Northern Ireland than we do in my, my farmers in, in Hitchin and Harpenden. Now, do we think that this necessarily ruins the union? No, it, we don't think so. For very good practical reasons, we effectively have an all-island economy for agricultural products. Mm. Now, I'm sure there would be the people who would have made the argument whenever this was put in place, well, this will mean that Northern Ireland's different from the rest of the United Kingdom. Well, on some level, that is true, but it doesn't mean that that difference can't be accommodated. And I think that the difficulty with this is that there has been a departure from what we have today. And whenever things change from where they are today, people are very uncomfortable with that, and it's difficult. But, I'm, but I don't think it's an insurmountable obstacle as long as there's a goodwill on both sides to make it practically as seamless as possible. Boris Johnson broke his promises, though, didn't he, to the DUP? That's plain and simple. Well, what I know is that the DUP were working very, very closely with the government on this new arrangement. So, and you know, and, and it's a real shame well, that they did. We, we were almost... Well, my know, understanding is that they were willing to go as far as Boris Johnson went in his meeting with Varadkar, which was different to what actually ended up in the deal. Do, maybe you can explain yeah, that. Yeah, I think I was yeah. amazed that in the initial proposals, whereby you create a sort of regulatory zone on the island of Ireland, the DUP were willing to tolerate that, because my understanding previously had been it was the sovereignty argument that was crucial, part of the United Kingdom being under a legal system over which we have no say. Uh, but they tolerated that, which was no mean feat on the part of the Prime Minister for persuading them. But I think at that point... The customs stuff that came subsequently was seen as adding insult to injury and the straw that broke the camel's back and any other metaphor you can think of for that. <laughs> uh, so actually, he'd got further than I thought he would get, but just pushed it a tiny bit, bit too, too far, far, wasn't it? And, and Rachel, where did the DUP go now from here? They've, you know, they've kind of... Um, they got anywhere to turn? Well, it's it's it's, it's really difficult for them, isn't it? Because um, the Conservatives, Conservatives are a unionist party and... Arguably, you could say Jeremy Corbyn's not a unionist. They're tough, for them to, tough for them to build bridges with him. Um, the man is in favour of the United Ireland. Um, but I think it's 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 really damaging for the Conservatives' brand as a Conservative and Unionist party, not just in Northern Ireland. So I think the SNP looking on at this will will make hay. They'll be looking at their voters, those who voted Scottish Conservative when Ruth Davidson was leader. Who's now gone. Who's now gone. And they'll say, look at how the DUP were treated. Why would you vote for a, for a unionist party? I think it's really, really difficult for them. I, I think in terms of what they could do, they could back a customs union. With Labour? Um, with Labour. The DUP? Yeah, that's, that's one of their options. Of course least. that's an option, and we'll see. What I think people do have to be honest about, though, is at the same time, one key thing the DUP wanted was to make sure that in any future trade deals, Northern Ireland was brought along with the rest of the United Kingdom. And that is something that was driving a lot of the work and the policy, and that has been achieved by the Prime Minister. Whereas in the previous backstop arrangements, Northern Ireland, yes, it was an all-UK backstop, but Northern Ireland had to be in the backstop, and the rest of the United Kingdom could have diverged away. So, 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 so actually, whatever way this was going to be done, this was going to be tricky. I see the DUP um, have said that they are going to back the government in Queen's speech votes. So I don't think the relationship has fully broken down, as testified by my conversations over the last few days. Uh, and that's not to me, I'm not saying they said, oh, we're all happy with everything. What I'm saying is the dialogue is very much continuing. You know, they know they have friends in the Conservative Party. They know that the Conservative Party is trying its best to keep the relationship good. 
it's above my pay grade as to know exactly who who makes what decisions over what but it is not all broken down. I think it's important that people understand that. There's an element of the DUP have to save face in Northern Ireland with their own voters as well. They have to come out of this process looking like they've they've achieved something if they're not going to lose support to parties like the Alliance Party or um, other more moderate unionists. So it's 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 not exactly an easy road for the DUP either. Right, great chat, but it's definitely time for the quiz now. Oh. And it's a good one. You don't want to hear more about Northern time, Ireland backstory. <laughs> It's important to go into the detail, but it's but quiz let time. Let me tell you, when he starts this quiz, you'll be missing the backstop discussion. <laughs> no, it's a really good one this week. So as the Donald Trump impeachment uh, process heats up, we're going stateside for this week's quiz, which is all about the nicknames the president has given to his friends and opponents over the years. So I'm going to, well, it'll be self-explanatory. Just chime in when you, if you think you know the answer and you'll get the point if you're first. So who did Trump call Britain Trump? Uh, Boris Johnson. Boris Correct. Johnson. One for Annan. Uh, Paul, as I'm going to be known during the quiz. Yeah, well, <laughs> the, the president said, uh, our PM is a really good man who's tough and smart. They call him Britain Trump, and people are saying that's a good thing. Are you able to do a, a Trump impression, Bim? Mine's terrible. I'm not going to try. I'm not going to do it, but Bim... <laughs> no, I, 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 if, it, if it comes to me in the next few minutes, I might just randomly come out. Like, Brilliant. <laughs> Second one. Who did Trump call my favourite dictator? Kim Jong-un. No. Putin? No. That's a blank on that, okay. Uh, It was Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi. Trump basically walked into the Hotel du Palais and and loudly started saying, where's my favourite dictator? Uh, in the middle of the G7 summit. <laughs> oh my goodness. You just couldn't make this up. Uh, final one. Uh, Alan's in the lead. Would this be your first ever quiz? Anyway. It could be. Uh, I thought it was my first ever quiz point. Yeah. <laughs> Who did Trump call Mad Alex? Mad Alex. This was quite a few years ago before he was president. Alex Salmond. Yes. Yes. Correct. Oh, the well, golf done. The yeah. golf well done. Why do I not get any on little, you know, Lion's Head, Little Marco? You know, you didn't give me any of these. These are the ones I, I know. You missed the backstop, didn't I? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I tried I to know. keep away from the US. My favourite of one of Trump. My favourite one of Trump's though is when he he was talking about Jeb Bush being low energy. Yeah, which was true. But then when he said. And then Jeb Bush went and gave this sort of very starchy Bush-like response, being like, I'm not low energy, look how energetic I am. And then, and then he just went and said, look, Jeb, putting an exclamation mark next to the name doesn't make you high energy, which was even funnier. Very good. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me, and make sure you subscribe to Common to People on all the usual channels so you can catch us every Thursday and get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. We'll just leave you with the Shadow Cabinet Minister Richard Bergen getting slightly confused about the 2017 election result. So you won't win. Pardon? The polls say you won't win. The polls said we won't win last time. You didn't. But I can... (laughs) 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.